If you want to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 4, we'll be finishing up today looking at this subject of sin that we've been pulling from that chapter in the story of Cain and Abel. Um, just kind of a quick summary to kind of get us caught back up at where we are. The first sermon was really on the reality of sin um, and that sin, oops, if you turn it on. Uh, that sin is a real thing, and it's fueled by these questions of God, questioning, is God good? Questioning his character, is he holding out on us? Is he keeping things from us? The questions of, is God right, and does he have the right to, in questioning his judgment? And then, is God in control, questioning his sovereignty? And, and do we want him to be in control, or do we fight ourselves for his control? And so the first sermon was just on the reality that sin is real, and it's fueled by these questions that we allow ourselves to kind of entertain about God. The second sermon was all about the results of sin. And basically, it's the why we fight against sin, why we want people to, to repent, why we want people to struggle against sins, because the results of sin mainly is sin separates us from God, separates us from other people also, but we really spent some time looking at this separation for God, and we looked at who God was, that God was light, and God was goodness, and God was comfort, and God was mercy, life and hope, provision and blessing, strength and power, love, honesty, justice, Peace, endurance, encouragement, and harmony, all these things come from God. And when you're separated from God, you're in the absence of these things. And this is what really gives life meaning. This is what makes life good. These are all the good things in the world. And when we're separated by God because of our sin, we're separated from these good things. And we're left with, their, with the antithesis, the opposite of these things, which, as we discussed, is kind of a hellish existence. Today, we're going to be wrapping up this series, and we're going to be talking about recognizing sin. So the reality of sin, the results of sin, and today we're going to be talking about recognizing sin. Because what good is it to fight sin if you don't recognize it, if you don't see it for what it is? And first thing I want to do, and, and we're going to be referring to some verses here in Genesis chapter 4. So if you want to find that, I'll tell you where we're at as we refer back to that story. But the first thing I want us to recognize is some, a couple of general statements I want to make about sin that, that I think it's important for us to understand or recognize. One, the first one is sin plays the long game. Sin plays the long game. Uh, and so we hear this story about Cain and Abel. Verse 5, it says, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. God didn't regard Cain's offering. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Then there's another chapter, or another, another paragraph. Verse 8 starts another paragraph. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. Now, the Bible isn't terribly clear in a time frame in which these things happen. And I think we read this story, and we think this all happened in one day. And it may have, you know, like they got up that morning and made their offerings. They weren't accepted. That afternoon, God comes to Cain and says, hey, if you do the right thing, you'll be okay. That, you know, later in the afternoon, they're out working in the field. Cain kills him, like it's all in one day. 
but it may have taken more time. There, there at least seems to be the idea in here that Cain has this chance to get a hold and get a grip on, on sin. That, that he, his offering is disregarded. God comes and visits him and says, now if you'll do what's right, it'll be accepted. And there seems to be this time of opportunity for Cain to kind of get himself under, under control and start doing what's right. Then sometime later on in the story, he's out in the field with his brother, he's talking with his brother, and the anger jumps on him again, and he becomes a murderer. Like I said, the Bible's not terribly clear on the time frame of this story, how long it took, but, but it may not have been one day, that it may have been a gradual thing, that it started off with this anger, and this anger that Cain would not manage builds and builds and manifests and grows, and he harbors the grudge, and he thinks about it, and over time he reaches this place where he finally just loses it and kills his brother. The popular Christian group, uh, Casting Crowns, had a song uh, some number of years ago called Slow Fade. And this is the chorus to that verse. It says, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray and thoughts invade, choices are made, and prices will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. And what we recognize about sin is that sin is playing the long game. Sin and Satan don't want to just take us down today, but they, they erode away at us like the wind on a, on a giant stone that over time, little bit by little bit by little bit, it eats away at us. Maybe one of the best examples in Scripture of this is Lot. Remember Abram's nephew Lot and they were traveling together? Well, there's a steady progression of compromise in Lot's life. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, it says that Lot looked at Sodom. All right, so that this is when he's choosing which way he's going to go, and he looks towards the fertile valley where Sodom's at, and he goes, well, that looks like a good place to go live. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 12, it says that he pitched his tent towards Sodom. So, he, so he'd made this move, moving in towards the valley of Sodom. In Genesis 14, 12, it says, now uh, uh, Lot was living inside of Sodom. And by Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, it says Lot was in the gate. Uh, and the gate, that references to a political position, that the men who ran, ran the city, they would sit at the, at the gate of the city each day, and they would make their, it's kind of like the city council. That's where they met, and they sat there in the gate, and they would make judgments, and, and they'd run the city. And so Lot slowly progressed from looking at, at Sodom to moving towards Sodom to moving into Sodom. Now, by the end of the story, he's kind of on the city council. He's, he holds position within the town. And then a little bit later on, as you'll know, when God's judgment comes on that, that city, he barely escapes with his life. It's a slow fade. It's, it's the long game. It's a, it's a little compromise today that will lead to another compromise tomorrow that will lead to another compromise in the future. And it's this slow, long game of sin that we, we work on. Samson may be another example of that. If you know the story of Samson, Samson, forgive the pun, flirted with sin throughout his life. And it's this, his, his story of his life is, this, is a picture of a pathway that starts off with one sin that leads to another sin that leads to a greater sin. And then Samson ends up in the temple of a foreign idol god with his eyes plucked out, strapped between two pillars. 
the small compromise that we make today leads to a greater compromise tomorrow, which will lead to another compromise in the future. And we need to be aware, reason we want to do what Barney Fife used to say, and nip it in the bud, right, is because sin is playing the long game. And the longer we play, the further we get down the road. And that leads me to the second. And Samson's another good example of this. Lots another good example of this, and I'll give you some more. But the second thing you need to recognize in this long game that sin is playing, sin will take you where you never thought you'd go. As we start down this compromising path, as we move from one to the next, you're going to end up, the destination is somewhere you never anticipated. Samson never woke up one morning and said, well, one day I hope to grow up and have my uh, eyes plucked out and be strapped in the middle of this uh, idol's uh, temple, right? Cain never said, man, when I grow up, I'm going to be a murderer. I just can't wait to to get there and I'm going to kill my brother. He never expected to be that way. How about David? As he moves into sin, you think David ever expected to be an adulterer? And the murderer himself? Or Saul, that when Saul started off as king, he said, one day I'm going to be the dethroned king. You know, a simple compromise led to another compromise, led to disobedience, led to Saul being dethroned and basically losing his mind at some point in life. Sin took him where he never expected to go. Or Randy mentioned another one today, Judas. How many of us think that when Judas joined Jesus' merry little band of disciples around the countryside, he's like, I'm going to be the betrayer, and I'm going to commit suicide and hang myself. You think that was in his great thought? I wonder if on that moment before he stepped off and committed suicide, he thought, I never expected it to end this way. I never thought I'd get here. I can tell you I have heard that sentiment time and time and time again in counseling sessions when people are are finally to a place where it's all blown up and they say, I never thought when I started a year ago or two years ago or three years ago or whenever that I'd end up here. I never thought it would come to this. Because sin plays the long game and, and the devil's intention is to seek and devour is to take you somewhere you never thought to go. And it makes, it starts off fun and easy and feeling good, and it always ends in pain, destruction, and a place you never expected. Sin also will keep you from where you'd always hoped to be. So it does one of these two. It either, it either takes you somewhere you never thought you'd go, or it keeps you from where you always hoped you'd be. And let me give you an example. One of the great heroes of the Bible, Moses. Moses had a little problem with anger. And it got the best of him a couple of different times. Once he rose up and killed an Egyptian in in Exodus chapter 2 verse 11. A little later on when he was near the camp, when he's coming down from from Mount Horeb and he's got the, the Ten Commandments and he gets down there. And the people have gone crazy and built a golden calf. In anger, he slams the things down. 
Finally, in Numbers chapter 20, verse 7, once again, the people are grumbling and complaining about God, and, he, and they're thirsty, and they're about to parch to death, and he's like, all right, here, take it. And he slams his staff against the stone, brings out the water for the people, but God says, because of this, you won't get to go into the promised land. He climb Mount Pisgah, and he'll be able to see it, but he won't get to go where he's been leading the people all this time. The long game of sin is to either take you somewhere you didn't want to go or keep you from getting somewhere you always hoped to be. Now, you put that in eternal terms, take you somewhere you didn't want to go or keep you from where you've always hoped to be, the place you were made to be in God's presence. And so we need to recognize this is what's going on with sin. And while we fight against it, Cain never set out to be what he ended up being. He didn't want his name to be known as the first murderer. But sin, which he did not master, over time wore him down. And so let me today talk a little bit more about recognizing sin in a, in a more proper kind of way. And let's how to identify sin. There's three tools I think we have that help us in identifying sin. The first tool is we know. We know. Now, I was recently reading a, a, a passage from Tozer again, or listening to a sermon from Tozer. Y'all have heard me mention him, one of the kind of heroes that I, I listen to a lot. And he pointed out how it's become popular in the present time, and his present time was the 1950s, but it's still pretty accurate, that it's become popular in present time to preach in the third person. You know, we know, because that's less harsh, and that's less confrontational. And that's less preachy than if we say, you know. But the fact is, you know what's right and what's wrong. And the first thing that we have that helps us identify sin is that there's within each one of us a sense of right and wrong. The tree that the Adam and Eve ate from was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says we are like God knowing good and evil. That we have something with inside of us, all humanity. Most humanity calls it a conscience. You know, that we, we have this general knowledge of what's right and what's wrong. For you, as believers in God... People filled with the Holy Spirit, you have an extra measure of something in you, the Holy Spirit, whose job is to convict us of what's right and what's wrong. So we, as our base, base self, know what sin is, although we don't want to admit it most of the time. We have a general sense of right and wrong. But there is a problem. We know, but... Jeremiah 17, 9 says, or the problem is we cannot completely trust ourselves. Even though we have this knowledge, even though it's there in our heart, even though we have the spirit, we can't completely trust ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Matthew 13, 15, for this people's heart has grown callous and they're hardly hear with their ears they have closed their eyes otherwise they might see with their ears hear with their 
see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Romans 1, 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified God, him as God or gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and in their darkened, uh, fool, and darkened in their foolish hearts, even though they knew God. They knew what was right. They knew what was good. 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly states that in later times some will abandon the faith to follow deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons influenced by the hypocrisy of liars whose conscience has been seared with a hot iron. Have you ever heard somebody say, do you have a conscience at all? How can, how can somebody with a conscience do that? We have this general understanding that people should know what's right and wrong. And when we see someone doing something so ghastly wrong that it's so blatantly obvious, we, well, how can they do that if they have any conscience? The Bible says that can actually be seared off, shut down, if we go so far into denying sin. 1 John 1.8 if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That we have this ability to fool ourselves, to trick ourselves into thinking what we're doing isn't sin. And so even though we know what's right, we can't completely trust ourselves because we can deceive ourselves, we can lie to ourselves, and people are just experts at justifying we can justify anything we want to we're experts at it we don't even have to think hard about it i think we just do it and for us as believers who have that extra measure of help in this area first thessalonians 5 19 tells us that we can quench the spirit that we can ignore him that we can make him be quiet that we can we can resist him and he won't provoke us anymore so although this is a great tool that this indwelling in knowledge in us is a great tool for us identifying it, we can't completely trust ourselves. So God gave us another tool. Since we can't be completely trusted, since the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, as the Bible would say, since people are expert justifiers, I've even seen people use and abuse the Bible and the Holy Spirit to justify what they selfishly want to do. That's what we as Christians like to do. Do our own thing and then wrap the Bible or wrap the Holy Spirit around him and blame them for us doing what we wanted to do in the first place. Since all these things, God's given us another tool. God gave us lists. <laughs> He's given us lists. There's lots of them in the scriptures. Just Plain black and white. i read a few to you. Galatians, I'll give you the list for those of you who are taking notes. Galatians 5.19 through uh, 21. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and sorcery. Hatred, discord, jealousy, and rage. There's Cain, by the way. Rage. Right? Rivalries, divisions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a nice list. Or Matthew 15, 18, and 19. But the things that come from the mouth, uh, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, that deceitful, wicked place, right? 
and the things that defile a man, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Mark 7, 20 through 23 is a same list, a little bit differently stated. Uh, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, debauchery, evil, slander, arrogance, and foolishness. All these evils come from within, and these are what defile a man. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 for you do not know that for do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God but do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God as you can be all those things and God can forgive and does forgive in Jesus Christ. Those are some pretty bad lists. So we have these lists. We have this knowledge. We have these lists. But the problem with lists are, are, are two. There's, there's really two buts with the lists. One, we have selective hearing or selective reading. Right? I, I read a whole bunch of lists. And I would be curious which ones you heard. Because I bet you heard the ones that weren't yours. You know, oh, see that one there. See that one there? Oh, I knew that one would make the list. I knew that one would make the list. There might even be, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this preaching. Sitting in the back over time that people would come out. Man, too bad so-and-so wasn't here today. They could have really used that. Okay. That's what we do because we're justifiers, because we don't trust our, because of our little deceitful hearts. We read these lists and we see those big things that other people do. But maybe we look over rage or arrogance or foolishness or deceit or division. And, and, and we focus on the things that we don't do and not have our ears pricked. Do the things we do do. We have selective hearing and selective reading when we read these lists. And so we almost avoid the list because all we find in these lists are the things that other people shouldn't be doing instead of looking at them. Let me find myself here. Because we may not be able to, to identify, well, this list, oh, this is some pretty bad stuff in here. Sexual immorality, right? Murder, theft, adultery. I don't want to be labeled with those people. And when I find those things that apply to me in the same list with those things that apply to other people, I find out, wow, I'm really no better off. And so for our own kind of self-worth, we sometimes miss the list that apply to us. But the second problem with the list is yet another list, Romans 1. The whole chapter, if you ever want to read that, is pretty interesting in how sin's dealt with, but it's kind of culminated in verses 28 through 32. And since they did not seem fit to acknowledge God, all right, you get that. That's the first thing we talk about, that people have this knowledge of God. Well, since they didn't seem fit to acknowledge that, since they deceived themselves, since they lied to themselves, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with every manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness malice they are full of envy murder strife deceit maliciousness 
They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. The greatest problem with the list we have in the scriptures is that last line. We live in an age that gives approval to sin. Of all those sins, everyone we just read, gossip is now approved of as venting. You need to get it off your chest. You need to tell people what you think. You need to, to, to just not hold on to it and, and, and just, just purge yourself of every thought you had. Hatred is similar like that. All these things. And, and in our time, we have already we've begun to question these lists. We've begun to marginalize these lists. And we've, been to, we've begun to compromise on these lists saying, yeah, I know what's in this list of things, but that was for a different time. That's not current for today. And, and, and you want to know where most of that marginalizing, questioning, and, and undermining of these lists comes from? The church. That we and that the churches have begun to compromise one little step, then one little step. Well, maybe that's not so bad. Well, maybe that's not so bad. Well, maybe that one's not so bad either. And we've slowly, slowly, slowly worked our way away from these lists to the place where we don't count them anymore. We don't preach them. We don't study them. We don't teach them. And we don't hold them all the same. Gossip and greed and division and selfishness and falsehood and pride. We've made compromises in those areas. So now the bigger things that we consider bigger that really aren't bigger, we're being pushed to compromise on them too. And that's happened within our watch and our time to defend the scriptures. We should expect it from the outside world. The problem is we've undermined ourselves. But that's a good tool. So we have what we already know. We have these lists to back us up. If we can just get ourselves to listen and pay attention to the right thing and, and hold those scriptures. But then there's one more tool that we have. And it may be the greatest tool in our anti-sin toolbox. But it's probably the one that's not pulled out very much. And it's what I call soul keepers. In the story of Cain and Abel, Cain asked one of the most pro, uh, prominent questions, I think, in all the scriptures. It's a simple little statement he makes that's usually just kind of looked over and, and, and dismissed. But I think, and I really think it's probably one of the main points of the whole story, to be honest with you. It's, in, it's found in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And you probably know what Cain said. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? It's a rhetorical question. And the implication answer to the way Cain says it and the way it's written in the Bible is what? Yes, you are. By Jove, that's why I'm asking. Because I expect you to look out for one another. 
this idea of having a brother, a soul keeper, someone who is, you know, my brother's keeper, sister's keeper, person's keeper, however you want to say that today, is throughout Scripture. And it is the best tool we have in fighting against sin. Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Judge not that you be not judged, for if with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the, see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? All right, that's usually where we stop at, right? Don't judge me. Let's finish it out. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, right? That's what it says, verse 5, you hypocrite. But here's the instructions. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's not, this teaching is not a free-for-all, you can't judge me, I can't judge you. No, it's we're supposed to judge one another and get it all out of our eyes. That we're supposed to help our brothers. Part of that is taking care of ourselves, but it is to help our brothers. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and confront him privately. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if you will not listen, take one or two others along so that the matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. The, the part of our responsibility as a body is this brotherly care, looking out, caring, keeping our brothers. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's back to the log and speck in your own eye. James 5.20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Again, James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. I don't think that means somebody getting up here and laying all your dirty laundry out, but you should have a brother or a sister, someone close, someone who can help keep your soul that you can share those things with. The fact of the matter is, if we're really serious about winning against sin, we need to use all three of these tools. We need to recognize what's inside, especially for those of us filled with the Spirit, to recognize the conviction of the Spirit in our lives. We need to understand and read the scriptures and hold to the scriptures and the, and the teachings that the Bible tells us. And we need to use this most powerful tool. And let someone who's a base in those first two, who is a believer themselves, who has the spirit and who upholds and believes in the truth of the word. We need to have another person that when we are lost ourselves and we've ignored the thing can come alongside of us and help teach us and correct us and rebuke us and encourage us. The problem I see most in, our, in, a, in the discipleship of this world is most of us don't have or won't allow someone to get to that spot in our lives, to really be a soul keeper. And when we do, and they get the courage up to confront us on something that's going on in our lives, we generally bail on the relationship. It's all fun and games until the rubber hits the road and someone corrects you and, and says something, well, now I'm just, you just offended me and we just can't be friends anymore. And so the only but in this last one, 
is what excuse do we make for not having someone in our life? What excuse is it that, that you make for not having a soul keeper? Yes, I know you, you have the Holy Spirit. Yes, I know you have the Bible. But the Bible seems to teach there are people around you who are supposed to be helping you, someone you can trust and someone that can trust you with your life if you're serious about sin. I can't be that for everyone. This service can't be that for everyone. But you need to have relationships with believing believers who hold up scripture who can walk with you in a real kind of way it's the greatest tool you are one another's greatest tool in the battle against sin that's what i believe is one of the main reason god calls us to be a group he didn't call us to be individuals but that we need one another. And I think this battle is one of the major reasons we need one another. Because we can deceive ourselves. We can know it in our head and justify it. We can, we can know it one second and justify it out of our mouth in two seconds. We can look at the scriptures and we can be blinded to the things that should be obvious to us. We cannot want to hear and not want to see the truth of scriptures. And that's where another person coming along to help you out is paramount. And so in this battle of sin, as we look at this story, we need to recognize sin is real. It was passed on to the first brothers. Genesis chapter 4. Sin plays the long game and it will take you where you never thought to go. It destroyed Cain's life. And the results of that sin in Cain's life, it separated him from God. Cain cried out, this is too much for me to bear because I'm separated from your face. We should think about that, about how sin separates people from God. And that should fire us up to fight against it, to use the tools of the indwelling Holy Spirit, of our own conscience, to use the tool of the scriptures and to use the tools of relationships with other believers to help us win the fight of sin in our lives and in the lives of others. This is the battle that rages on still today. Even though we have forgiveness in Christ, we still fight this world. And we want others to be joined with God because of the forgiveness in Christ. This is our war.